Well, if you'd like a title for this morning's message, I've called it Shock and Awe. And I'd be grateful if you'd turn with me, please, in your Bible to Exodus chapter 9. You know, one of the important things that I learned, particularly as a young preacher about preaching, was something that R.C. Sproul once said when he said about the importance of finding the drama in the text and how important it is when we prepare to preach to find the drama in a text. And I think that helped me over the years to understand what is it that I'm meant to be doing in the week. Well, in part, I'm meant to be finding the drama. Live with the biblical authors. Live there. Imagine what they're talking about and find the drama and everything they're saying. And when it comes to the book of Exodus, the truth is that is not hard. I mean, this whole thing is one big drama from Moses' birth to the basket to the burning bush to the plagues. It is one drama after another. And yet what is much harder to find, I think, in the book of Exodus is sometimes the point. Why is this here? What is God trying to tell us right here? And I think Brendan and Riley just did a wonderful job over the last few weeks when it came to the signs and the start of the plagues and helping us understand why they're here. Because the point of this entire scene from the start of chapter 7 through to the end of the plagues It's all about God making himself known. It's about showing us who he really is. And so to Moses, he revealed himself in chapter 3 in the burning bush as the great I am. The one who was and is and is to come. The Holy One of Israel. And then God takes Egypt through a series of plagues in part because he wants to reveal himself to the Egyptians. In chapter 7, verse 15, in talking about why the plagues are happening, God says, It's that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. He wants this nation to realize and understand the great I am is in control of them as well. And he is a God of power and sovereignty and splendor and justice and might. And he also wants to reveal himself more fully to the Israelites as well. As you read in chapter 6, verse verse 5, it says that Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God. He wants to show us these plagues and these signs so that Israel too may understand who God really is and his mercy and his grace and his love and his affection towards them as his people. And we learn in chapter 9 then that in part these plagues are so that all people may know God knows that these Egyptians and these Israelites are going to get talking after these events. And he knows the word is going to get out about who he really is. And he wants that to happen. He wants the nations to understand who the great I am really is. And so what we have here in this entire scene of the plagues is a glorious and sobering and awe-inspiring picture of the great I am. A picture of who he really is in splendor and majesty and judgment and justice and who he really is in mercy and grace and love and patience. This really is your God. And so I have two points this morning as we examine this text. Number one, the narrative explained. We're going to be looking at chapter 9 verse 13 through to chapter 11 verse 10. And so I'm not just going to read it all in one go. 
We're going to take our time through these different plagues and we're going to look at the final four plagues and what they tell us about the Lord. And then my second point is going to be the narrative applied. Because I want us to understand what this all means. What is God showing us and why? More importantly, what has it got to do with you and me? Because it has a lot to do with us all. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get into it together. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity and sufficiency and necessity. Lord, did you open our eyes today to behold who you really are? You are the great I am. Lord, did you help us to take you off the shelf of just being a domestic cat and help us to see you as the great lion that you really are? For you are the Holy One of Israel. Lord, blow our minds today with reality. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, then, the narrative explained. One thing that is clear as you examine these plagues is that they are going from bad to worse. And so it begins with blood, it then continues with frogs and gnats and flies and dying livestock and boils. These plagues are increasing in their severity and intensity. They're getting worse and worse and worse. And yet what's also clear is even though Moses stands before Pharaoh and demands that he let his people go, Pharaoh simply will not do that. And even when boils then, as the sixth plague, are inflicted on the people of Egypt, even then he decides, still now, I will not let your people go. Pharaoh is a hard-hearted, sinful man and refuses to let the people of God go. And so on comes the scene then, the seventh plague. And the seeventh plague is hail. Let's look together. Chapter 9, verse 13. I'm going to read to 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. But this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, And the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. 
There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as has never been seen in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Now, hailstorms, if you ever got caught in one, can be particularly violent and particularly harrowing, can they not? Just a few weeks ago, we were in Noosa, um, in Queensland. Usually it is sunny. Yeah, well, as soon as we got in town, hailstorm started. I mean, this is how we roll. Usually, usually we're camping. Fortunately, this time we were in a shelter. But nonetheless, we experienced some serious hail. And some of these pieces of hail were like conkers. I mean, they were large pieces of hail coming down from the sky, and you would have seen it on the news. Brendan, in fact, texted me with a smiley face, letting me know that he was aware also that in Brisbane there was a lot of hail right now. Are you okay? Ha ha. You know, that type of thing. This is the type of care we receive from the pastoral team here. And they were big pieces of hail. And I saw on the news the next day that although we didn't cop a real load of it, somebody right by us, probably about an hour away, was actually caught out in the storm and she had been trying to be protecting her child. She had nowhere to run. She just put herself over a child and her back was covered in cuts and bruises. The back of her head was bleeding as she sought to care for this child. Hailstorms can be serious things and yet the hailstorm we got caught up in a few weeks ago was nothing compared to the hailstorm that we experienced right here and look on it right here in Egypt. It says in verse 24... There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. This is one serious hailstorm that they've never seen before and likely have never seen since. True massive hail, most likely the size of golf balls, raining down from the sky with rain and fire to boot. And the result was that whatever was outside would be killed. Crops would be destroyed. Livestock would indeed die. Now, for some of you that are more observant, you may be wondering, how come there is any livestock still alive? Because I thought they all died in the fifth plague. So what are they doing here? How have they ended up here if all the livestock have already died? Well, you have to understand the way Moses is using the word all, all the way through these plagues. And in the way he's using the word all is exactly the same as the way we use it most commonly in English language still to this day. See, when we say all, most often it doesn't mean all as in every last single thing. It simply means the vast majority. And we do it all the time. Let me give you some illustrations. When I sometimes go home and I enter into the playroom where Liam and Savannah are present, I sometimes go to Emma and then say, there is mess all over the floor. It's all over the floor. Well, she doesn't then think to herself, so literally when I go in, I will not see any of the carpet. There's just mess all over the floor. Well, no, I don't mean that. I don't mean it's literally all over. What I mean is it's, it's everywhere. It's all over the floor. But yes, you can still see some of the carpet. Yet I did use the word all. We might say to ourselves, all of Australia is just boiling right now. All of it. Well, are we saying then that there is no cold spots anywhere ever? 
that in Tasmania there's no coldness, that there's nowhere to go outside of the heat. No, we're just, it's a phrase. All of Australia is boiling. It's exactly the same way that Moses is doing it. So when he tells us that all the water is turned into blood, there is still nonetheless some water left for the magicians to then use to try and turn water into blood. Because it's not the way he's using all as a literal, absolute entirety. He's saying a vast majority. And he does it the same when it comes to the livestock. When he says all the livestock are killed. Yes, the vast majority are, but there is some left. The bad news for those that are some left is that this plague is now going to wipe them out. For any livestock that do remain, if they are now found outside, they will be A hailstorm is a serious thing. And this hailstorm is going to destroy all the livestock that remains and indeed all the crops. And so this hailstorm is a serious threat to Israel, not least because they are an agricultural society. So when you hear this news of a hailstorm, the reality is what you're hearing is that our economy and food source is going to be completely wiped out. There will be nothing to eat, there will be nothing to sell. It's a fearful thing. But Pharaoh would not listen. Even though he was warned that this is what God will do if you don't let his people go, he will not listen. He sends them away, and so the hailstorm comes. And it does indeed wipe out the livestock, and it does indeed wipe out the crops. And so. Pharaoh does what he's done all along through these plagues. What he offers then is some type of fake repentance. Yes, he's remorseful, he's sorry. In verses 27 and 28, we see that. I'm really sorry. Can you please get them back here? I've got a problem. Can you call a pastor? Many people do it. You know, this is what he does. I'm in trouble now. You've told me it's going to go bad. It has gone bad. Call a pastor. Help me. Okay, can you tell God to stop it? Because I'm really repentant. Well, Moses has been around the clock a few times by now with Pharaoh, but he does it anyway. And God does indeed stop the hailstorm, and yet Pharaoh, this is fake repentance. He's actually not repentant at all, and even after the event, he determines that he will not let God's people go. So the hailstorm stops, but there is no change in Pharaoh's heart. And so then comes the eighth plague, The plague of locusts. Look at chapter 10, verses 3 to 15. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. And they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve us, serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? 
Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said, Pharaoh, said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. That is not what they were asking. He just said to him, you need to let all my people, all the children and all the livestock go. And he's turned around and said, no, just the men. No, that wasn't what I was asking. Verse 13, verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the Lord of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. You know, the, the real root of the issue happens in verse 3. When the people of God, when Moses says to Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? That's the word of God to Pharaoh. How long will you fight me? How long will you be proud before me? How long will you refuse to bow the knee to me? It's a question that, that God asks Pharaoh. In truth, it's a question that God asks each and every one of us. How long is it going to be? before you will realize that I am God and bow the knee to me. And even Pharaoh's servants, even his nearest and dearest, they, they caught on to this. And so they appealed to Pharaoh in verse 7, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? I mean, these men could have been killed for saying that to Pharaoh, but they knew, Pharaoh, we're not going to win. Pharaoh, do you not see all that has already taken place? The hail has wiped everything out. The water has been turned to blood. There's been frogs and gnats and boils. Pharaoh, we're not going to win. Pharaoh, wake up. It's not happy news. It's sad news. But nonetheless, realize we have been beaten by the great I am. Pharaoh, stop it. Just let him go. You know, in all honesty, I'm not sure that there's a more vivid picture in all of Scripture of the dangers of the effects of sin in our lives than that one right there with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is, in effect, lying in his own waste. His whole country has been decimated. His friends and family are gathering around him saying, Pharaoh, stop it. There's no more. We're not going to win. God's destroying us and you. Just stop it. But Pharaoh will not stop. You know, if you've ever experienced that with a family member or a friend who you dearly love, you will know how painful this really is. 
Moments when you can see the destruction that is coming on somebody's life because of their own sin. And you appeal to them and exhort them to wake up, watch, look at what is happening. And yet they will not. And even though it seems to be going from bad to worse to them, still they will not listen. It's a most grievous thing. I've experienced it many, many times as a pastor in my life when you are sitting with somebody pleading for them to stop it. But they will not. And you watch in slow motion then the destruction that comes on their life as a result. It's grievous. And it's what happens with Pharaoh right here. Pharaoh will not listen. He will not let the people of God go and so the locusts do indeed come by their thousands. Now, it can be hard for us to understand in our cultural context just how bad locusts can be. But to give you an idea, it was reported in the London Times um, about 10 years ago now that there was an epidemic, really, in the Middle East and in Africa. There were swarms of locusts numbering nearly 80, 80 million at a time. And it was said that per square foot, which is only about that, there would be up to 10,000 locusts swarming throughout the nation. Now, here's the important thing about a locust. A locust, each and every day of its life, will eat the equivalent of its own body weight. So when they swarm in, in their millions, they leave nothing behind. The grass is gone, the trees go, the crops go, everything is completely and utterly destroyed. And so this plague, then, is an absolute horror. It says there, verse 14, the locust came up all over the land of Egypt, and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor will ever be again. This was a vast, vast swarm, and they left behind them decimation. No more crops, no more trees, nothing has been left. This is once again complete and utter economic and food source ruin. But even then, Pharaoh will not listen. He refuses in his stubbornness and in his sin, even now, to let the people of God go. I mean, the initial signs after this event look good. They do. Look at verse 16 and 17 of chapter 10. It says, Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. That sounds encouraging. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. This sounds so encouraging, doesn't it? If somebody came to you and said, listen, I realize I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God, please forgive me. You'd no doubt be encouraged. But as the story continues, you realize, no, this was remorseful, but this was not repentance. He was sad. He was genuinely sad that this is happening to him and happening to the people. Please, make it stop. I'll do anything to make it stop. But as soon as God does make it stop, he's not interested in letting his people go anymore. I'm still not going to bow my knee to you. I'm grateful you made it stop, but I'm not going to follow you as my king. I am the king. I am the center of my world, not you. But Pharaoh once again hardens his heart before the Lord and responds to the Lord with fake repentance. And so then comes the ninth plague, the plague 
of darkness. Chapter 10, verses 21 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. You know, to understand why darkness would have been so fear-invoking to the Egyptian people, we really have to put ourselves back in time to understand what it would have been like at this point in history to undergo darkness. You see, for us, if we were to lose natural light for three days, it would no doubt be concerning. For these Egyptians, it was totally devastating and life-threatening. Douglas Stewart, then, in his commentary on Exodus, says it this way, I think, wonderfully. He says, to fully appreciate this plague account, one must understand how ominously darkness threatened ancient people. We travel easily at night with the aid of various forms of electric lighting, but they were virtually immobilized by the darkness of nighttime. We can be active at night because our homes and places of work can be cheaply illuminated, but they closed their cities at night, barred their courtyard gates, and locked their house doors. People around in the nighttime were assumed to be criminals, and typically, in fact, were. We feel relatively safe during the night, even away from home, with various means of communication to call for help readily available. But they were at the mercy of common thieves and bandits when away from home at night. And unless well-armed and in large groups, they were easy prey for those who used the nighttime as cover for evil. They understood that the darkness was essentially chaotic, a kind of enemy of the safe and the good. Yet we may think of it as just another part of the day. For they would have considered confinement in darkness a grave punishment from God and associated it with death itself. You know, I think you can taste from that description and begin to picture then the devastation and fear-evoking reality that would have come on Egypt as a result of this three days of pitch-black darkness. I mean, if that had happened to us, it would have no doubt been a moment of significant concern. If our lights go up for three days, it would have been concerning. But for them, this was life-threatening. There would have been no doubt around Egypt with doors shut and locked everywhere, a palpable sense of danger, of fear, of terror, because only people out there are bad people who might seek to kill me. No lights anywhere. Palpable fear in the air. And no doubt for all the inhabitants of Egypt, there would have been palpable fear not only because of what darkness usually meant and the unworldly characters that would then come out at night, it was also a clear sign that the great I Am was doing this. That this was the king, kings and lord of lords performing this miracle and making this happen. You see, all the way through these plagues, what God has been doing is taking on the various Egyptian gods and goddesses. All the way through, the Egyptians worship many gods. And all the way through, God has been taking on their different gods and showing them, your God is not real. For I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. I am the God of gods. 
I'm greater than anybody you could have asked or imagined. And all the way through, that's what God has been doing. But now in this penultimate plague, he takes on their chief God, the God whose name is Ra, who was the sun god. And it was believed that Ra, the sun god, was basically embodied in Pharaoh himself. That's why they worshipped Pharaoh as a god. They believed that Pharaoh was the embodiment of Ra, the sun god of all. So you can imagine the terror in the land when God takes on Ra, the sun god, and in a moment, boom! His light goes out. No sound of birds. No sound of animals. Most of them have been killed. No sound of anything. And nothing to see. Darkness covers the land. You can taste the palpable nature of fear and terror and horror that no doubt the Egyptians huddling in their homes behind locked doors must have been experiencing in this moment. And Pharaoh is without doubt awoken at this moment by all that is going on. And so he seeks to cut a deal with Moses. He says to him, listen, enough is enough. I see what is taking place, and so yes, I will let your people go. All the men, all the women, and all the children, all that I ask is that you leave the livestock here, and then you can go. See, so often we can want to do that with God when we become a Christian, can't we? You can have everything, but not this bit. God doesn't cut deals. So Moses made it clear, I'm sorry, that's just unacceptable. God demands that you let all his people go, including the livestock. And Moses then erupts with anger. In verses 28 and 29, we read in the following, said, Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. From the day you see my face, you shall die. Pharaoh has had enough. And Moses said to him, as you say, I will not see your face again. Pharaoh erupts in anger and you can't help but sense in the air now, the end game is nigh. The final solution is coming. This can't keep going on like this. Something dramatic and drastic is going to happen right now. Either God is going to win or Pharaoh is going to win, but this dance isn't going to be able to keep going on. And that's when we read then about the final plague threatened. Namely the death of all the firstborns. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 8. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man his neighbor and every woman of a neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, 
and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. The end game is nigh. Pharaoh on the one hand and Moses representing God on the other. It is the end game. And this final plague then that is threatened is the death of the firstborn. The death at midnight as the angel of death comes through Egypt and kills each and every firstborn present of man, woman, and cattle. It is a horrible, horrible thing that we are examining here. And at first glance, I must admit, it can appear somewhat harsh, can't it? Because is this the same God that we worship? What's going on? And yet we have to understand and we have to remember these Egyptians, they aren't just innocent bystanders of all that is taking place. For the last 400 years, the Egyptians have been willingly and actively enslaving God's people. The last 400 years, they have been beating God's people, whipping God's people, demanding that they work for them for free. They have treated them like slaves and they have treated them abhorrently. And just a few years earlier, the Egyptian people had willingly and actively played a part in the Israelite genocide. You remember in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh commands his people to go into all the homes of the Israelites and find their firstborns, find all the boys and all those that will follow and grab them as soon as they are born and take them to the Nile and throw them so that they may be killed. No one complained about it. They gladly and wholeheartedly and actively did it. The Israelites were causing problems for Egypt. They were a danger to Egypt. So putting them in slavery and killing them, yes, I'm up for that. We should not think of the Egyptians as innocent bystanders in this whole play, as if, oh, I just feel so sorry for them. No, they murdered God's people and abused them for 400 years. And we must also understand that this plague This plague of the death of the firstborn is exactly what God had promised and warned them about all along. He had told them this already before the plagues even began. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 through 23, this is what God first said. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God tells him right up front, if you don't respond to me, if you don't let my firstborn son go so that they may worship me, so that I may be their God and they may be my people, if you will not let them go, I will not let your firstborn son go. 
My friends, this can make uncomfortable reading when it comes to the death of the firstborn. But we must understand, we must understand that this is our God. This is Him. He's not some domesticated Santa Claus that sits in the corner and comes out every now and again to help us. No, He is a God of love and mercy and kindness and grace. Definitely. But he is also a God of power and majesty and holiness and judgment and justice. Over the last 400 years then, he has seen Egypt abusing his own people, his children. He's seen Egypt abusing them and whipping them and killing them. And he has heard the cry of his own people. And so now at midnight, he is coming in justice and judgment because they are his people. He will not be mocked. He is not willing to overlook this any longer. It is time for judgment. And so at midnight he will come. The angel of death will pass through the city. And each and every firstborn son will be killed. Because Pharaoh must let God's people No, it's not hard to see the drama in the text, is it? When you examine it and when you spend time in it, it's, it's gripping. It would have been incredible to be there. It would have been terrifying to be there. But to see all these things taking place, and it's not hard to see this incredible and sobering and awe-inspiring picture of the great I Am. It's not complicated viewing. But it is, I think, all too possible to potentially still go away from today and have no clue how this affects our life. To hear it as a story that happened three and a half thousand years ago. Yeah, interesting, really fascinating, thanks. <laughs> and have no clue how it affects our lives today, but it does. And so just in closing, then number two, the narrative applied. Because it does apply. The Bible is alive. It has hands, it has feet, it has a voice. It's always trying to come after us. We're reading the Bible, it's reading us. God is always trying to communicate something to us. Every time we read it, God is revealing something to us. And I think when you examine these texts, all the way from 7 through to the end of these plague scenes, there's two themes, two realities about God that are present all the time. And they're present all the time because God wants us to see something about who he is. Realities that have never changed and realities that are true and important for every single person in this room. Two things. The first then is the reality of the sobering judgment of God. A reality. See, sometimes I think we can look on at the Old Testament and think, yeah, God, oh, you seemed a bit angry then. Please, he's changed. Jesus, meek and mild, little baby. Hmm. He's the same God. He hasn't changed. He even tells us time and time again, yesterday, today, and forever, I will not change. We must understand here the reality of the sobering judgment of God. You see, without doubt, these plagues from 1 through 10 are truly horrible in nature, aren't they? Water into blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock. 
boils on people's bodies, hail, locusts, darkness, and indeed then death. They are horrible, horrible, horrible plagues. And yet in all honesty, as you continue to read through the Bible from page to page to page, you begin to realize then that these plagues are a mere introduction to the eternal realities that wait all those who, like Pharaoh, refuse to bow the knee to God as their king in this life. They're just mere introductions. God wants each and every human being to bow their knee to him as the king. And for those that don't, these are mere dim reflections of the eternal realities that await you that await all those that have exchanged the creator for the created, that await all those who have taken the kingdom, but they've rejected the king. I love the world. I don't want the king. I love my life. I don't want you. You know, the Bible's clear that within that context, hell awaits. R.C. Sproul, it's uncomfortable reading, but he says it this way. He says, we have often heard statements such as war is hell or I went through hell. These expressions are, of course, not taken literally. Rather, they reflect our tendency to use the word hell as a descriptive term for the most ghastly human experience possible. Yet no human experience in this world is actually comparable to hell. If we try to imagine the worst of all possible suffering in the here and now, we have still not yet stretched our imaginations to reach the dreadful reality of hell. For there is no biblical concept more grim or terror-invoking than the idea of hell. My friends, biblically defined, hell is an eternity before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God. A punishment from which there will be no escape, no relief, and no end. No wonder then, the writer to the Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And goes on to exhort us then, that as we worship, we need to worship Him in all of our lives, in reverence and awe. Because He's the great I Am. The one who was and is and is to come. The God of justice and judgment and holiness. But the challenge we all face in our lives is that none of us have done that, have we? None of us. Not even one. For all have sinned, Paul tells us in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God made us to find our joy and purpose and worship in Him, but everybody's rejected that. We've all exchanged the Creator for the created, and by nature, then, Paul tells us, we are objects of God's righteous wrath. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, I did not come to church for this. This was not, I mean, I'm just hanging out with a friend. I didn't come here for any, you know, fire and brimstone stuff. This is awkward. But my friends, what you've got to imagine is, is what I'm saying not what the Bible teaches then? Because it is. We can't just pick up the Bible and, oh, I like this, Jesus, oh, he looks lovely, I love that, him, I love that, oh, judgment, no, oh, no. You can't do that. 
You have to let the Bible speak for itself. And as the Bible speaks for itself, Hebrews 9 verse 27 says that man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. And it's clear that as we face judgment, we stand before the Holy One of Israel. And if we're found in sin, we will be cast into hell for the rest of our days, enduring the wrath of God in His righteousness. You might not like it, but you have to choose to reject it. It's not about liking it. It's about, is it true or false? This is the God of the Bible. This is the truth of Scripture. It is what we have to understand is the law of the universe. You know, I think these plagues, they placard before our eyes the reality of the sobering judgment of God. It is inescapable. It is coming. You might not like it, but not liking it is like running to the top of a cliff and jumping off the edge saying, well, I just don't like gravity. I'm not going to respond. Respond, you will. And the law of the universe is you will give an account to the Lord for your sin. And if you are found in sin, then hell will be your eternal reality. A hell which makes these plagues look like a nursery rhyme. But here's the second thing that we also see wonderfully in these plagues. And it's good news. It's the reality of the abounding grace and mercy of God. And what a happy and relieving discovery this is, do you not think? See, all the way through these plagues, one of the things you see again and again is the way that there are two different groups of people and they are treated very, very differently. And so you have one group of people, which is the Egyptians, who really represent in so many ways the kingdom of darkness. And so they get lashed with these plagues again and again and again and again. Everything that's gone wrong for them all the time. The hail comes on them. Their livestock dies. Darkness comes. Stuff is gone wrong for the Egyptians and those that are part of the kingdom of darkness again and again and again. But over this side, we have the kingdom of light and we have the Israelites. And it's amazing. God wipes out the livestock. Boom! Apart from... All those that are marked with the mark of the Israelite, he doesn't do that. They go free. God comes and he invokes boils. Boom! But not on the Israelites. They're fine. He shows them blessing and protection and help. Darkness comes for three days. Boom! But not on the Israelites. They're still getting on with their days. They're fine. Covered and cared for by God, blessed by God and treasured by God. All the way through these plagues, it is bad for the kingdom of darkness, glorious for the kingdom of light. Bad for the Egyptians, glorious for the people of God. All the way through, there is a difference. There is an exception to be made. It says that even when God comes through now as part of this final plague to come, not even a dog will bark against the Israelites because God, who is all-powerful, will even close the mouths of the dogs. You won't even bark against my people. There is a stark difference in the way God operates with people if they are his to people that are his enemies. What we learn throughout this text in entirety is God is saving his people, isn't he? He's saving Israel. That's what he's doing all along. They've been in bondage and slavery to the Egyptians, but God is saving them. He's bringing them out of slavery to be his own people, free and to spend time with him. My friends, the glorious reality is that as we serve a God that hasn't 
changed. He is still saving people to this day. It's the glorious news of the gospel. For God so loved the world, Jesus tells us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, namely himself, so that anybody who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. What he's saying is God has given, him, given us his son, Jesus Christ, and for all those then that are a part of the kingdom of darkness, which is all of us, for all those that have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that are by nature objects of his wrath, he's made a way for us to be removed from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light, where we'll be forgiven and redeemed and adopted and we'll know that heaven is our home. How is it possible? How can I go from darkness to light, from blindness to seeing? Jesus. The finished work of Jesus Christ in your place. He's the only way. Charity work? Yeah. Being a nice person? I don't think so. It's too late for that. Faith in Jesus Christ alone is the only way to move from darkness to light. He's the only way. See, God does not illustrate himself in this glorious book of the Bible by saying, you know what, you better behave or you're in big trouble. That's not his tone. The tone of the Bible is, you, is not, you better behave, otherwise you're having it on that day. No, the tone of the Bible is, you have not behaved. You are going to be having it on that day. So I've come to rescue you. I've come to try and help you. I've come so that you may have life and that in abundance. This isn't the way it was meant to be. You have messed up your life, but I've come to take you from darkness to light. I've come to save you by my grace. How? By bending your knee and taking me as your Lord and Savior. Just like Pharaoh never did. It's the opportunity while you're still living and breathing to respond how Pharaoh should have always responded. Bowing the knee and saying, you are the king. You are God. And I want to follow you. My friends, if you're here today then and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you, don't wait another second to make him the Lord and Savior of your life. If you truly want to go from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light, there's only one way. The way, the truth, and the life. It's only Jesus. But you can't just take bits of him and then ignore the other bits. You can't make a deal with him. Okay, look, I'll follow you, but I still want to live like this part of my life in every way I want. No. You have to bow the knee to him. I say, I make you the Lord of my life. And would you forgive me of my sin because I want to follow you. If you've never done that, then I want to exhort you to do that today so that you may know this light and so that you may know this life in abundance. Don't remain in darkness any longer. And my friends, if you're here today and you do know Jesus, I want to encourage you then to do all you can to assure this great story of salvation doesn't become your best kept secret. The Bible is clear that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Every one of them. Man and woman, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, it doesn't matter. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But it also goes on to tell us, Paul in Romans chapter 9, 
says, yes, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how are they to call on the name of the Lord who they not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've not heard? And how are they to hear about him without somebody telling them? Who's going to tell them? Well, Jesus then looks us in the eye in the Gospel of John and he says, you know what, as the Father has sent me, I now send you. It's you. Three and a half thousand years ago, it was Moses. Moses was called by God and set aside by God to go tell a most important message to Pharaoh. And now we're those that have been called. We're all those that have been sent. We've all those that have been given a glorious light of the gospel and the glorious truth of the great I am and the glorious reality of this great salvation. We've been sent to go and tell people. So may we go and tell them and would grace abound to us all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are an incredible God. And Lord, as we spend time in the plagues and the shock and awe of all that is taking place, Lord, we should be humbled and startled that you have not wiped us out like that. We were against you. We did not bow the knee to you. We're just like Pharaoh. And yet in your grace, you sent your son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. In grace, you sent him so that he may die as our Passover lamb, as our substitute, so that as the angel of death passes through our lives, we may go free. Lord, it is scandalous grace. And Lord, I do pray that each and every individual in the room would experience this grace. You're a glorious Savior, Lord, a glorious King, and a great I Am. Amen. Send us into that place. Let's pray away.